0: Take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, verse 36. Lucky you, we are done with Nehemiah. I heard a thank God in there. Who said that? It was just two months in the book. The ancient Tupperware was clay pots. Um, I was doing a lecture once to college students, and I said the word pots, and some of the college students' ears perked up, and so I had to clarify what I meant by that. Despite their simplistic nature of these vessels, they become quite significant looking glass into the ancients. So you take a look at ancient sites such as Tucumcaman, Pompeii, Qumran, Cairo, Jericho, on and on. We, We begin to take a look into the life of the ancients. We see how they lived, how they practiced, how they went about trading and developing. Who would have thought such deep things would come from such simple things? They held all sorts of things, not only for trading, but for cooking, for cleaning, wine bottles, storing, buckets, cups, on and on. Pottery is, is different. Once fired in a kiln, pottery is virtually indestructible, though it's not indestructible. Once cracked or severely busted, it becomes a, a broken vessel, it becomes discarded. So why am I yammering on about, about pottery? The words of Scripture are listed from the ancients, and sometimes they use objects such as pottery to describe what they're feeling. Take, for example, uh, what David writes in Psalm 31. Be merciful to me, Lord, for I am in distress. My eyes grow weak with my sorrow, my soul and my body with grief. I have become like broken pottery. I wonder if you contemplate a time in your life in which you have felt broken, Consider if your life has ever felt like a vessel such as this. Has there ever been a time in your life in which you felt utterly useless? A broken vessel. And you felt like somebody was taking your life and just smashing it to pieces. The ancients say, I feel in sorrow and distress like broken pottery. This morning, we're going to have a conversation about brokenness. And the context of our scripture from Luke chapter 7 is quite puzzling because Jesus is having encounter after encounter with individuals that are broken. He heals a woman who's been suffering from a disease for many years, he encounters a rich man's daughter that has died. And then we come across this curious text. Luke chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. A woman in the town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So what's the setting? Jesus in the home of a Pharisee named Simon. If you doubt Jesus when he says, Love your enemies and pray for those who curse you. Take notice that Jesus is literally eating a meal with the very people who would make his life a living hell during his three years of ministry. Jesus accepts Simon's invitation. He goes to his home for a meal. And while they're reclining at the table, Jesus, the, the scripture says that a, a woman living in sin came to Jesus. We just hit an uncomfortable term, sin. What does that mean? Sin comes from the Greek word hamarteo. It it literally means missing the mark or falling short. So this woman is living a sinful life. She is missing the mark. She is falling short. Her choices are to the right or to the left of how God created her to be. Now, we don't know exactly what's going on in her life. She could have been a prostitute. She could have been cheating on her husband. She could have been a woman who broke Sabbath rules she could have been a person who went against the Mosaic law that banned you from eating crawfish. We don't know. The point is not a particular sin, but the fact that she's living a life of brokenness and missing the mark. And on top of whatever sin she might be, she is a woman living in first century Palestine. Women were viewed on the same level as, as servants. So she had very little rights. She would have been pushed aside by men and her society. Look at what happens in verse 37. It says, A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisees' house, so she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. This just got a little awkward. Here's a woman who finds out that Jesus is in town, and despite the social standards of the day, she's a stranger. She enters into a stranger's home so she could see Jesus. So beyond the, quote, sinful life of this woman, we also find out that she's a desperate woman. She's a woman that goes beyond the physical boundaries of someone's home, the social boundaries of someone else's party she's not inviting to, all because she wants to find Jesus, the third thing we can learn about this woman is that she's humble. She doesn't beeline it to Jesus to interrupt his conversation. She doesn't pinch his feet. She just gets down on her hands and knees and begins to clean his feet with her hair. Now, my wife tells me that I have gross feet. Uh, it's not that I have athlete's foot or some sort of disgusting fungus. I just have a lot of calluses in my feet from, from running. But my feet are nothing compared to the first century men. Everyone walked around in sandals. Their feet were constantly exposed to the dry climate, the dust in the road, the grime on the streets. And so it would have been customary for a house guest to be offered at least a bowl to clean their own feet or for a servant to be sent to clean a guest's feet. But apparently Simon didn't offer Jesus this, so this woman humbles herself by beginning to clean Jesus' feet. And she didn't just clean it with a typical bowl and towel. She does it with her tears and her hair. Something is causing her to become so overwhelmed with emotions that she is just pouring forth tears down her nose onto Jesus' feet. Have you ever been in a a moment like this overwhelmed with emotion? I remember on our wedding day, going out in front of the sanctuary with the pastor and my, my dad, and I remember standing there seeing each of the bridesmaids and groomsmen come by, just giving the nervous nod but then they opened the doors, and there was Jennifer, and I just started crying. (laughs) So here is this woman, so overwhelmed by emotions. She's crying on Jesus' feet, and on top of that, she's kissing his feet. Can you imagine what her hair would have looked like after cleaning the dirt and the grime off Jesus' feet? A woman, at this time, her hair was her glory, She would have had her hair up or covered at all times. In fact, by letting her hair down in front of a man she's not married to, socially speaking, is the equivalent of if she had just walked into this party topless. She is revealing herself to Jesus. She's trying to show Jesus something. And she doesn't just stop there. She takes this expensive bottle of perfume and she begins to anoint Jesus' feet. This is a story of humility. It's a story of, of shame. It's a story of, of something. And why? We get to it here in verse 39. When the Pharisees who invited him saw this, he said to him, if this man was a prophet, he would know who, he is, who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. I like to call verse 39, religious people strike back. Leave it to the Pharisees to capitalize on this awkward moment. Simon, and all Seeing this woman all over Jesus, his mind is racing. He cannot even reconcile who Jesus is claiming to be and what he's allowing this woman to do. Not only would it have been socially unacceptable for this woman of sin to be hanging around such righteous people as Simon, not only has she defiled herself by uncovering her hair, but also Simon sees that she's actually making Jesus unclean because she herself as an unclean person is touching this man. And he doesn't want this moment to go unnoticed. And so he begins to pour forth to Jesus who he thinks this woman is. He begins to judge her and condemn her, saying that if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who was touching her. You see, religious people see other people's sin, not their own. They're constantly aware of other sin and not the brokenness in their life, they're filled with pride and smugness and self-righteousness and judgmentalism and a constant holy art thou mentality. And they view the brokenness in their life as something completely set apart. Religious people tend to live their lives in their their head. They think and quietly criticize others who are serving Jesus and this woman who is serving Jesus. She's doing the very thing that Simon himself did not offer Jesus to do. That's what we do. We tend to find the flaws in other people. We tend to put them into a category and to label them and push them to the side. What's kind of funny is that Simon thinks to himself that if Jesus was really a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of sinful woman she is. The irony is that if Simon was really a true Pharisee, then he would know his scriptures. In the Old Testament, the prophet Hosea is instructed by God to go and marry a prostitute to illustrate to the people of just how much the people are treating God like a prostitute. But alas, just like most religious people, Simon only picks the parts of Scripture that he wants to fit into judging and condemning other people. Scripture says this in verse 40. Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Tell me, teacher, he said. Two people owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed 500 denarii and other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back, so he forgave the debts of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who has a bigger debt forgiven. You have judged correctly, Jesus said. Jesus is going to take advantage of this moment. He knows what Simon is thinking. He knows the judgmental thoughts that are welling up in his start. in his his mind and so he uses a simple elementary illustration to prove a point everybody let's do a simple math problem together one plus one equals two okay I did hear a three in there maybe that was in my head let's say Bubba Henry gives me five dollars and gives Aaron Biggers five hundred dollars who owes him more Aaron okay So Jesus asked this Pharisee the easiest math question in the entire Bible. If someone owes somebody 500 days worth of wages and another person owes them 50 days of wages, who will love the money lender more for canceling their debt? The answer is so simple. Debt is something that we understand as a culture. Did you know that the average American household has $16,000 of credit card debt? The average American household has $137,000 worth of, of debt. The US total consumer debt is $4 trillion. This really revolves around the fact that we spend beyond our means. We want so much that we cannot afford. We've got to have the bigger house, the better gadgets, the better cars. And I think our society can understand what Jesus is talking about here. The difficulty of financial debt and the weight that is so heavy. On your hearts. And in Jesus' day and age, they would understand the barring and unsettling debt. And so to Simon, Jesus says, dude, everyone owes somebody some sort of money to a great money lender in our life, and it's called God. Both of them owe an outrageous amount of money, and neither are capable of paying for it. In fact, the key in Jesus' parable is not the fact that people are able to pay this overwhelming amount. It's the fact that there is this gracious and forgiving moneylender. God is this God who, who cancels debts. And like a cautious and disdainful answer, Simon responds to Jesus with such the obvious answer to it, but he still doesn't get it yet. And so it says this in verse 44, wrapping up with our text. Then he turned towards the woman and said to Simon, "'Do you see this woman?' I came into your house and you did not give water for my feet but when she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you did not give me a kiss but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore I tell you her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has been shown. But whoever has been forgiven little, loves little. Then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. The other guests began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And Jesus said to this woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus isn't going to miss out on the overwhelming power of this moment. Jesus has yet to look at this woman, but when it mattered the most, he looks at her. It's not with eyes of judgment that he looks upon her, it's with eyes of defense and protection and love. And in the same fashion that Simon points out the sins in the eyes of this woman, Jesus points out to Simon the most inconsiderate nature of his host. Simon isn't even giving Jesus the, the most common decency of the day. And Jesus is being very confrontational in this moment. He is calling out his hosts. Jesus is not going to let Simon ruin this moment. He looks at this woman and declares that your sins are forgiven. Of course, at his words, everyone around him is amazed at what he's saying. And through the eyes of overwhelming love and mercy for this woman, Jesus looks at her and says, Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. This is an extraordinary woman. There is no doubt that she was not welcome at this party. Yet out of her own initiative, she she takes so much risk in this male gender moment. She pushes forward to seek the freedom she needed in her life. She recognizes that she is a broken individual before a loving God, so her natural move was to humbly serve God. The most woman has displayed great love and great gratitude towards Jesus. She is worshiping God in the most authentic way she knows possible and takes in Jesus' words when he says, your faith has saved you. It is her faith, it is her courage, it is her willingness to trust in God in this moment that redeems her here. And this is an extraordinary story with an extraordinary woman, but more importantly, an extraordinary God. It's in the face of social barriers and religious boundaries and condemnation-filled men that Jesus kicks the door open and shows this woman extraordinary love. We see so clearly that Jesus overcomes all social and religious and political dangers for the sake of God's children All social taboos are broken down in this moment. All boundaries were stepped across. Not only does Jesus' love overcome such things, but his love overcomes all sin and brokenness in her life. He doesn't excuse her sin. He doesn't neglect her sin. He doesn't shift the blame. He responds to this woman who has chosen repentance in her life with showing her overwhelming forgiveness and mercy. This is not a popular teaching, but we too are like this woman. We have racked up debt in our life because of our choices and our self-inflicted brokenness. We too are the borrowers in this story that are so overwhelmed with insurmountable debt towards God. And the hope and truth of this story is that we were created by a God who desires to cancel our debt. To wipe it clean, to take out the picture of all of this brokenness in our life with love and mercy, not judgment, and condemnation. A debt balance of zero. That's what Jesus is going for here. The Greek word translated to cancel is charisome. It's uh, the verbal form of the the word charis, which means grace, or kindness, or mercy. This this word is only used three times in the entire gospel of Luke, and it's used twice in this passage. It's, It's this idea of releasing from, or forgiving of. And so what Jesus is trying to say here in this moment is that the grace and mercy of God is releasing us, is forgiving us, it's setting us free from the brokenness we've chosen for our lives. We were created by a God who sent Jesus to come into our presence, not to be an overwhelming and overpowering moneylender or self-righteous Pharisee, but to be a God who graciously and lavishly loves us. God forgives our debts. How do we come to that God? And one of the most beautiful and impactful parables, Jesus tells us the story of two men who come into a temple. He said one was a Pharisee, and the other was a tax collector. And essentially, the Pharisee was a religious man, and the tax collector was just this guy who was a swindling crook. The Pharisees stood and posed and prayed like this, Oh God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers and crooks and adulterers and heaven forbid like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and tithe all of my income. The arrogance and superiority complex saturates the Pharisees. Just look at his posture. For one, he is standing. It would have been custom in Jesus' day at least to bow your head, at least to go down on one knee. But no, he's standing there in all of his pride. Meanwhile, Jesus says, there is the tax collector. He's slumped in the shadows, his face in his hands, not daring to look up to God. He says, God, give mercy. Forgive me a sinner. Jesus' commentary on this parable says, this tax man, not the other, went home right with God. Jesus is affirming the tax collector's prayer would have shocked and befuddled his audience. But it raises the question of, do we go to God in arrogance do we approach God in self-righteous arrogance with expectation that God will and must do something in our lives? Is our perspective of God that, as a pleasure-producing deity that gives us what we want because of who we are and what we have accomplished? Do we even approach God knowing that if God doesn't act, we'll just turn on God because our love for God is actually conditional love based on if God does what we desire from God? It might even be that we don't even bother bringing our crisis to God because we've got this. Or are we like the tax collector and like this woman who approach God in humility? Do we approach God in our brokenness, in our anguish, desiring that God do something? As Job so famously responded to his wife after being stricken with extreme loss of his poverty and wealth and children and his health, Should I accept good things from God and not the bad? For many, we are so humbled by our brokenness, we can't even imagine a God that would receive us, that would love us, that would forgive us and restore us. Yet what we see from this narrative is that God has a gritty love for us. God's love is not prim and pressed. It's not squeaky clean. It's not that kind of love. What we see in Jesus in this moment is a love that's willing to get dirty for the sake of the beloved. It's a love that's willing to be judged even though it doesn't make sense to self-righteous people. It's a love that overcomes all social obstacles all for the sake of the beloved knowing that they are loved. You see, Jesus in this moment This is a beautiful and authentic moment in which Jesus shows us just how difficult and opportunistic and relevant God's love is. It's a love that takes our brokenness and begins to make us whole. It's a love that heals us and restores us despite what we have done and others have done. It is a love that overcomes all obstacle. God receives us healing our soul, mending our spirit, and transforming us into something new. But will we go before God? A UBC church member asked me recently how things were going in my previous ministry setting at Mosaic Church of Clayton. And they asked me also while we were talking, tell me about the name. And so I obliged them. The name was always intended to tell a story. Uh, the mosaic form of art is quite unique. An artist takes uh, broken pieces of things like uh, glass and tile and pottery, things that are usually useless and discarded, and that artist then takes these things and begins to form and put them together to make something new, to make something beautiful. And God's work is similar. For God is, is taking our brokenness and is making us whole through Jesus Christ. Along the way, God is piecing us together with other people to form this beautiful thing called the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is similar to Mosaic, for God is including an array of people, not self-righteous, perfect people, but broken people of all walks of life, of all stories, of all ethnicities, of all experiences, and pulling it and piecing us together to form this beautiful image. What we learn from Jesus in this story is that we all belong in God's love. There is not a single one of us, no matter what we have done, no matter what others have done to us, that we cannot belong within God's love. It's a thing that gives us hope. It's a place that brings us to something safe. Brokenness is not the end of the journey. It's something at the beginning of health and beauty and something new.